Today we're going to talk about the heart of Jesus. And one of the reasons I think I'm preaching again in three weeks, and one of the things I, I really am fascinated with is what is the heart, what was Jesus' heart like? What was, what was Jesus' heart for people like? Because it took me in my own personal life a long time, and I'm still evolving into trying to understand what is the heart of Jesus. And today we're going to look at this story. If you have your Bibles, you know the story, probably most of you do, of the bleeding woman. We're going to look at that in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 34. This was a woman who, you know, knew about setbacks. Did you guys ever hear about the milk cow that tried to jump over the barbed wire fence? It was an utter failure. Thanks. Did you hear about the guy who fell into a furniture upholstery machine? He's fully recovered. That's good. Did you hear about the fire at the circus? It was intense. Anybody ever hear about the cat who drank three bowls of milk? He set a new lap record. Has anybody heard about the butcher that accidentally backed into his meat grinder? Yeah, he fell a little behind in his work. That's right. But seriously, did you ever hear about the woman who had been sick for 12 years? She spent all of her money trying to find a doctor, but she's still sick. This passage contains two miracles. Jairus, of course, wants Jesus. Jesus is on his way to heal Jairus' daughter when this woman sneaks into the crowd, desperately seeking Jesus, tries to just get to the hem of his garment. So let's read about it here in Mark. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was still by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. That's great faith. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out for him, from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, Who touched me? A little sarcasm. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed 
from your suffering. There's a lot of famous paintings about this with this scene, but one of my favorites is by an American artist. His name is Stephen Yurtsen, and he captures this moment in his painting where this pale woman, trembling, emaciated, crawls through that crowd and grabs the prayer shawl that Jesus wore. And you can just, looking at her, see in her eyes, see in her complexion, the suffering that she had experienced and how desperately it was that she just wanted to get to Jesus just to touch a little bit of his prayer shawl. And I'm going to make four little observations about this miracle of Jesus. And I'm going to spend most of my time on the first one. And then we'll talk about the other three briefly. But the first thing that we learn here and the first truth that we can take about, away from here is that suffering is a part of life. But Jesus gives us hope. Right back in the days before 24-7 news channels and breaking news were constantly you know, beeping our phones and alerting us, you know, six ways from Sunday that something bad had happened in the world. You basically could only get your news from a couple of sources, right? The daily newspaper and the nightly news. I mean, that seems <laughs> totally archaic now because we get our news 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whether we want it or not. Every time we click on something on the internet, some story will pop up and we're inundated constantly with bad news because the media likes the fact and we like the fact as consumers that bad news really sells. And so we're constantly inundated with the fact that this world is full of bad news. I heard about this fellow that came home from work one evening. He walked into the kitchen and his stay-at-home wife has, took care of their three preschoolers and she was super upset looking. Well, he had had a rough day at work and so he looked at her and he said... <laughs> He said, I, I can't, I, I cannot, nothing went right today at work. I could tell you that you, you just can't give me one more piece of bad news because I can't handle it. And she said, all right, I'll try. She said, two out of our three kids didn't fall out of a tree today and break their arm. Listen, the world is full of bad news. And that's why the world so desperately needs the good news of Jesus Christ. In this incident, we find this woman is suffering on multiple levels. Physically, she's suffering from a blood disorder. We, we believe that her body didn't produce the plasma proteins that needed to make her blood coagulate. And therefore, she bled constantly. And this, of course led to other symptoms like being constantly weak, being anemic, and many other problems. And she had been like this for 12 years. 12 years. We live in 2022. Some of you know you can identify with this woman already, just on the physical level. Imagine if you've been suffering with a chronic health condition since 2010. And no matter what the doctors do, and no matter what the doctors try, it doesn't get better. It just keeps slowly, progressively getting worse. Some of you are in that boat. You can identify with that. You know what it's like to suffer physically for a lot more than 12 years. Others of you are young, and all the parts of your body still work good. Enjoy it while you can, right? 
you can't imagine. But this condition nagged her every single day. She also suffered financially. The Bible tells us that she had spent all of her money on doctors who couldn't cure her. Of course, in Jesus' day, doctors were really a lot more like magicians than they are doctors now. They're not doctors in the way that we would think of a doctor. They're a lot more like magicians. They didn't have to be trained. They didn't have to be licensed or anything like that. The Jewish Talmud lists several ancient cures for blood disorders. One of them said, what you need to do is you need to crack open a large duck egg. And then you need to burn the shell and the contents of that duck egg. And then you need to take the ashes and you need to put them in a linen pouch. And then you need to wear that linen pouch around your neck and boom, your blood disorder will be cured. She had spent money. She suffered physically. She suffered financially because she was broke buying duck eggs <laughs> or whatever the prescribes whatever the prescription might be in the Jewish Talmud. I mean, it's no wonder that they called those doctors quacks. <laughs> she also suffered socially. This was probably the worst. Her blood disorder caused her to be socially outcast. It caused her to be ceremonially unclean everywhere that she went. According to Leviticus 15, any chair she touched, any bed she touched, and any person that she touched also became ceremonially unclean. Imagine, you can't sit in that chair because I sat there and I'm unclean. You can't lay in this bed because I had sat on the edge of it and now I'm ceremonially unclean. If I touch you, you have to go get cleansed by the rabbi, even if it's an accidental brush, because I'm ceremonially unclean. Can you imagine how socially isolated that must have been? I mean, one of the basic needs of humanity in order to develop properly is touch. Babies need touch in order to develop properly. Human beings need touch. Sometimes we, get, we can be so alone that we get so isolated and so desperate that we're willing to be touched by a complete stranger that'll give us a hug just because we need to be touched. This woman hadn't been touched on purpose in 12 years. Can you imagine? Not only that, she wasn't even supposed to be in this crowd. She's required by law that when she is in the presence of other people, that she has to yell out, unclean, unclean, unclean. <clears throat> Everywhere she goes, if she sees a crowd, unclean, unclean. Unclean. Some of you who are hearing her story can relate to her. Maybe you're here today and you have suffered physically. 
and you need a touch of that garment. Maybe here you're here today and you've suffered financially or materially in some way and you need a touch of Jesus. Maybe some of you are here today and you know what it's like to be a social outcast. You know what it's like to feel unclean. You know what it's like to be hyper aware of your sin and your shortcomings and the pain that you've carried with you probably since you were a child. You're hyper aware of that. And you just need somebody to touch you and clean you. How do we respond to people like that? Because even if on the one in a bazillion chance that doesn't relate to any of you in this room, which is hard to imagine, it relates to a whole bunch of people outside of this room. You know, I grew up in East Texas, as you know. And like it or not, if you grew up in East Texas in the 1970s, you're a legalist. Now, my parents didn't teach me to be a legalist. It was in the, it was in the very air that I breathed growing up. Good people do this. Bad people do that. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with those who do. And while you're at it, don't dance. I had a professor that, at East Texas Baptist University. He used to think it was so funny, and it it's really cracks me up too. But he'd say, you know, you go to these camps, and they don't want the, boy, the teenage boys, you know, to have accidentally lust after a teenage girl, you know. So they put a chain-link fence in the middle of the pool so that the boys can swim on one side and the girls can swim on the other side. How absurd and legalistic is that? Man, when your body's coursing with that much testosterone, you don't need much. But we do those things because we think it makes us acceptable to God and we understand the system of punishment and reward. It makes a lot of sense to us. If I do good, I get rewarded. If I do bad, I get punished. <coughs> So growing up, I understood that system really well. I didn't come to know Jesus because he was loving and kind and compassionate because I didn't hear a whole lot about that Jesus. I came to love Jesus because I didn't want to go to hell and it seemed like heaven was a lot better option from what people were talking about. But I wasn't encouraged to like, hey, you, need to have, you should have a personal relationship with Jesus. All I kept thinking is, Man, all these sins that everybody's condemning, are the, that's the same stuff I do, and I feel like everybody else does it too. And then as I got older, I became a little bit more hyper-aware of it. But I thought it was my job. I thought it was my job to make sure that you felt sufficiently guilty for your sin. And let's admit it, I'm not the only one in the room. So I spread a little judgment here, I spread a little judgment there, I spread a little judgment everywhere that I went. 
And I was quick to point out the sin in others while ignoring my own, as we are often prone to do. Jesus said something about that with a log. How many people do you think I won to Christ doing that? It's so tempting though, isn't it? It's so tempting to look at people and to look at things that we don't agree with that are happening in our world and go, man, if I could just get a piece of that guy, I'd, lay, I'd make sure he felt sufficiently guilty for his sin. And then along comes, you know, first of all, the Bible never gives you the right to judge an unbeliever. Secondly, the Bible only says that I can go talk to my believing brother if he's caught up in sin and refuses to repent of that sin. And then it gives me a prescribed way to do that. But why would we expect lost people to act like saved people? Why? Why would anything that happens in the world amongst the lost surprise us? It shouldn't. When I was a substitute teacher in Royal every now and then, we would have a subpocalypse, that's what I called them. That's where they had like 30 openings and five subs that were willing to go in there. And so they'd call me every now and then. And I remember there was this one kid named Julian, and he was a pain in my backside. I had, I had started, uh, I almost said babysitting because it's kind of similar, but I had started um, substitute teaching when he was in middle school, and he just was, he was bad. <laughs> he was disrespectful. And I do not like disrespect. That's something that just grates all over me. If I see my kid disrespect somebody, we're going to have an immediate talking to, right? Probably you're the same way. So I go to this ninth grade math class, and I'm sitting there. And this, this guy's classes are always horrible. I mean, I don't know what happens when he's there, but when he's not there, those kids are just swinging from the chandeliers. And old Julian comes in, and I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> well, he comes in, and he sits down, and he starts immediately being a pain. And then I ask him to do something, and he talks back to me. And so I tell him, you and I need to go out in the hall and have a conversation. You know, I was, a lot of the subs didn't do that, but I did. And I would take him out in the hall, and I'd say, look, dude, here's the deal. You're being disrespectful. I can't handle that disrespect. And so when we go back in the classroom, I'm going to need you to have a new attitude and a new outlook on life. Otherwise, it's not going to go well between me and you. And I said, so when you go back in there, you're not sitting at a table with your friends. You're going to sit at this table all by your lonesome. And I don't even want you to look at your friends. So he says some smart Alec stuff, and then he says, okay. So he goes back in there, and I'll be daggum if that kid didn't walk straight to that table with his friends and go to sit down. And so I followed him, and of course I was thinking, this, this is not happening. 
So I grabbed him by the back of his backpack and I gave him a gentle tug, you know, like, hey, I'm bigger than you. It's time to sit down where I told you to sit. He looked at me with venom in his eyes and he said, you can't touch me. And I said, kid, I don't even work here. You're under, the mis you're under the impression that I'm an employee of this school system. What are they going to do, fire me? <laughs> Eventually, he got connected with Young Life, accepted Christ into his heart and his outlook and his complexion and his continence and everything else changed about that kid. Countenance. I don't know anything about his continence. <laughs> his countenance. His countenance changed. From then on out. So you never know what God might do. I had nothing to do with that. That was all young life, God thing. There was another girl that I saw when I would substitute once in a while in fourth through sixth grade. And I don't know what her name is. But she looked like she was hurt. Every time I saw her, she looked desperately sad. Her hair was colored, you know, a bunch of different colors. Every time I saw her, her hair color would be different. Her bangs were really down far, covering her eyes, which is at times a signal that I don't want you to see me unconsciously. She was struggling with gender identity. Well, all of the righteous kids had already made her fully aware of her sin. They didn't have anything to do with her. So every day, she just sat in a corner looking sad and lonely. Once in a while, I would see the teacher come out there and talk to her, or the principal would talk to her and try to get her to go back into class. But even leaving the corner of the hallway to go back into class was an exercise in immense pain for this girl. Now listen, she hits all the buttons for condemnation, doesn't she? She's confused about her gender. She cussed a lot when I would hear her talking. What would Jesus do with her? Did she need me to go up to her and say, the lifestyle that you have chosen is evil and wrong, and if you don't repent of it, you're going to die and go to hell? Or did she need me to walk up to her and say, how is your day going? Can you sit down? Can I sit here with you and talk to you for just a second? What would Jesus do? Her gender issues are way beyond my pay grade. I can't relate to that. I don't understand it. But I do understand the fact that she felt 
absolutely isolated. She felt absolutely alone. And that whatever it was that she was struggling with, with her gender, was eating her soul alive. And that at 12 years old, she had already lost all hope for this world. We have to be a lot slower about swooping in to make sure everybody else feels sufficiently guilty for their sin. And we have to be a whole lot quicker about swooping in and saying Jesus would be in the hallway with that girl. And therefore, that's where we're called to be, is in the hallway with that girl. This woman... Might as well have been that girl in the hallway. Suffering in pain, anguish, depression, no hope. Struggling with who am I? What am I? Do I have any purpose in life? And let me tell you folks, there are billions of people in the world struggling with those questions. And what they don't need is a sign anywhere near them that tells them that God does not like them. But what they do need is the touch of Jesus Christ and some hope in their lives through loving them. I heard all the time when I was growing up, you love this, you hate the sin, but you love the sinner. Well, in 30 years, I ain't seen that work once. How do you tell somebody, I hate everything that you're doing I don't like your character. I don't like who you are. I don't like what you're doing, but I love you. But those two things seem to have a hard time fitting together in my mind. How about I hate my sin, you hate your sin, and we just love each other? That's a lot more of what I think Jesus taught. How about I get disgusted about my own sin because I got plenty of sin in my own life to deal with without having to be disgusted about your sin. Now, I'm not saying that we don't share the gospel. I'm not saying that we water down the gospel. I'm not saying any of those things. What I'm saying is my first reaction is I know God has called me to love you. Amen. Beyond anything else, I know for sure that's what I'm called to do. So how about I hate my sin, you hate your sin, and we just work on loving each other. What if we respond in love instead of legalism and condemnation? What would the state of the church be? What would our reputation then be? Jesus said, you will know those who follow me by what? Their condemnation? No, he says, you'll know those who follow me by their love. Well, we're known as a church for any, not this church, but the church universal is known for almost anything except love. The number one word association, according to Barna, that unbelievers associate with Christians is judgment. In fact, the word association is so strong that if you introduce yourself as a Christian, they will assume you are judgmental before they ever even get to know you. That has to be broken because that's not what Jesus taught us. So this woman is suffering 
And there are people out there who are suffering who have been outcasts from society or who feel like outcasts, and we need to be, we need to touch them with love. We need to touch them with mercy. There was a popular song titled Charlie Brown, and it was sung by the coasters, and at the end of every verse, voice, a verse, <laughs> at the end of every verse, a voice would say, Why is everybody always picking on me? And when you're going through suffering, it's natural to ask that question. Why is God picking on me? Sometimes that results in anger against God, but why is God picking on me? Jesus gives us hope in the midst of suffering, and that's the good news we need to share with people. Paul suffered. He had some kind of a physical problem that tormented. He said it was a thorn in the flesh, and he asked the Lord three times to take it away, but the Lord never did. But he did something even better. He showed Paul that his grace would sustain him in the midst of his suffering, and then Paul says this, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Holy moly, what? I thought it was supposed to be that his power is made perfect in my power. His power is made perfect in my ability. His power is made perfect in my education. His power is made perfect in my hobbies. His power is made perfect in my strengths. No. He says, God said to me, his power is made perfect in me when I'm at the end of my rope. When I'm weak. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Suffering produces strength and perseverance in us. If you've ever looked at a golf ball, Right, they have dimples on the surface. I hit beautiful drives. They go a solid 25 yards. <laughs> They're great. If I play a 400-yard hole, it only takes me 10 or 15 shots to get on the green. It's awesome. I'm aspiring. I'm aspiring. The first golf balls were made in Scotland, and they were smooth. And you would think that a smooth surface would fly further. But these golfers discovered that when they got scratched and when they got roughed up, they actually went further when they hit them than they did if they were perfectly smooth. It's because of some kind of an aerodynamic principle. So the old golfers, they would take those new golf balls and they would cut grooves in them. And they would scuff them up, kind of the way we do an old baseball mitt. They would scuff them up and stuff. And then eventually, because they went further, golf balls started being manufactured with dimples. And that's how you have the golf balls of today. Listen, God knows if everything in your life goes perfectly smoothly that you will not fly as far as He has called you to fly. And so suffering comes upon all of us. Maybe you relate to this woman or you relate to that girl in the hallway or you relate to Julian or whatever the case may be, but suffering comes upon all of us and it's because God has designed us to fly a lot further than we could possibly could imagine. 
So the first truth is that. The second truth is casual contact with Christ isn't the same as a desperate grasp of faith. Picture the scene. Right? Jairus is leading Jesus through these narrow streets of this village and people are pressing in on every side. If you go to Jerusalem today and you walk through the narrow streets, there's always a huge traffic jam of people. People going this direction, people going that direction. A lot of those streets in Europe are so narrow because they're so old. And you're just, it's like being at Disneyland on the 4th of July or something. I mean, you're just, con you're just crammed in there like a sardine and everybody's touching you and everybody's moving in a million different directions. There was pushing and there was shoving in that crowd that day around Jesus. They, he's popular. They want to see this fantastic miracle worker. They're wanting to see, is Jesus going to be able to heal Jairus' daughter? That's the only reason they're there. <clears throat> Luke says the crowd almost crushed him. And in the midst of this mob where everybody's elbowing each other to get closer to Jesus, there's one desperate woman who is weaving her way through the crowd, quietly slipping below and around the people to get close enough to Jesus to just touch his prayer shawl. She had such great faith that she didn't need Jesus to even speak to her. She thought, if I can just touch his robe, I can be healed. So she reaches out and she grabs that prayer tassel with a grip of steel. The word that's used there doesn't mean she lightly touched it. It means that she grabbed hold of his prayer shawl with all of her might, the way a drowning person would grab hold of a life vest. She grabbed hold of it with all of her might. And in that instant, she knew that she was healed. For the first time in a dozen years, her bleeding stopped. And then Jesus says, who touched me? And you can almost hear smart Alex, Simon Peter going, look at the crowd of people and you ask who touched you, right? In other words, he's saying that's a dumb question, Jesus. Dozens of people that day were touching Jesus with the elbows of curiosity. But there was one person in that crowd who reached out with fingers of faith. And it was this woman. And Jesus recognized the difference between the two. He, he knew the difference between somebody touching him with an elbow of faith versus somebody reaching out and grabbing hold of his prayer shawl with all of their might. That's why he said, who touched me? There's a lot of people who casually touch Jesus, right? They sing songs of praise. They might listen to the message on their serious radio. They might pick up their Bible and read a devotion once in a while. They may go to church every now and then. They're elbowing Jesus with curiosity. But they've never reached out and touched him with fingers of faith. They've never grabbed hold of him 
and held on to him. I wonder if there's anybody here today who's desperate enough to grab hold of the power of Jesus like you grab hold of a life jacket if you're drowning. Jeremiah said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Vance Havner wrote this about the woman. He said, mind you, this woman was shy and timid. She was not in the habit of elbowing her way through the crowds, but when we are desperate enough, we'll do anything to get through to God. Our Lord said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Thirst is not casually wanting a drink of water. When we really thirst, water must be had and we will drive through any obstacle to get it. Christians do not drink of the living water because there is no burning, feverish, consuming thirst after God. The situation is desperate, but the saints are not. That's the state of a lot of folks today. The odds are that there are a lot of people in that crowd who had a physical need. But she was the only woman who said, I'm going to reach out and grab Jesus. In a crowd this size, there's no doubt spectators. And if you're a spectator or you're just checking Jesus out, that's great. But there are others of you who've been elbowing Jesus for a long time. And it's time that you grab him like this woman did. The last, one of the, there's another point. There's a personal cost to Jesus in every spiritual transaction. I mean, the Bible says at once Jesus realized that power had gone out for him. I mean, as I've studied this miracle, it, it finally occurred to me He'd been touched a lot. There were dozens of people crowded around him. How did Jesus know that someone touched him in faith? And the Bible says that he literally felt power go out from his body. When Jesus touched a blind man and healed him, there was healing power that flowed out of his body into that blind man. When Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, there was the power of life flowing out of Jesus into the corpse of Lazarus, and he rose. It cost Jesus something to heal people. And if you're going to chase after the people that Jesus' heart chased after, it's going to cost you something too. It might be you don't get invited to your neighbor's barbecue because you hang out with the wrong kind of people. It might be that someone says something about your reputation because you're hanging out with the people, the bad people, the people that Jesus would have hung out with. It might be that somebody says you're compromising the gospel hanging out with that girl that's confused about her gender. It's going to cost you something. It costs Jesus something. It's exhausting to give yourself away to someone. So you have to learn and set good boundaries of what you can and can't do. Psychologists have termed it compassion fatigue. And there's been a lot of recent study into 
the effects of being around vicarious trauma for extended periods of time in your life where you may not be personally involved in the trauma, but the trauma is all around you and it's difficult to separate yourself from that. Some of the symptoms include feeling exhausted physically, psychologically, feeling helpless, hopeless, powerless, feeling irritable, angry, and sad or numb, feeling detached, ruminating about the suffering others of others and feeling anger toward events or people that cause the suffering, nausea, dizziness, can't sleep. I mean, you may be there now. There may be somebody you're taking care of. Could be a parent or it could be a child or it could be somebody that you're taking care of and you have to consider the cost of what it is for you to give yourself to that person all the time. But it's going to cost you something to love the people that Jesus loved. It's going to cost you something to love people the way that Jesus loved people. There is no way around it. So are you willing to do it? That's the question. Has your taste of Jesus been enough to convince you that his heart is for the weak and the hopeless? And therefore, you have to chase after them in your own life. A few years ago, there was a movie entitled Green Mile. Of course, it starred Tom Hanks. And the, the main character is this huge, large man named Michael Duncan. And in the story, he has the power to take away sickness. And you'll remember that Tom Hanks has this painful bladder infection. And out of compassion, the big prisoner reaches through the bars and he takes the infection and he, he literally swallows it. And then he opens his mouth and, mouth and there's all these ugly insects that come out, but Tom Hanks' bladder infection is gone. But the big prisoner is so tired that he has to lay down and rest. And the movie is, of course, total fiction. But what did it cost Jesus to take our sin and our sorrows to the cross? Imagine the power that must have flowed out of Jesus on that cross. Isaiah gives us a hint. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Look at those words. Pierced, crushed, punishment, wounds. It cost him something. It cost him something to heal this woman with the blood disorder, and it cost him his life to heal us. And heal us he has through faith. The last point is Jesus asks us to openly confess him before others. When Jesus asked this question, who touched me? Is there any universe in which Jesus didn't already know the answer to that question? I don't think so. He knew exactly who had touched him. He wasn't asking for information. He was asking out of compassion because he wanted to give this woman the opportunity to declare that she had been healed. 
Now she, she probably would have been content to just slip away in the crowd with her secret healing. But Jesus says, no, I don't want that to happen. Listen, there's no such thing as being an undercover Christian. We have the good news to share with people. We have to be wise. But we have the greatest news that's ever come to mankind to share with people. Jesus saves. The woman comes forward. She kneels at his feet and she told him her story. And when you confess your faith before others, it gives them the strength and encouragement to do so as well. For them to see that you're not ashamed makes them not ashamed. And that's a powerful thing. If you confess, this is what Jesus has done in my life. I don't know about all the other stuff. I don't know about all the theological differences. I don't know about all that other stuff out there. But I know what Jesus did to me, like the blind man said, I don't know. What I do know is that I was blind and now I can see. That's all you have to do. Jesus didn't say to her, great, you're healed, I'll see you later. He said, daughter. He called her daughter. To a woman who has been isolated alone for 12 years. How good must it have felt to see her Savior say, Daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. From that moment, forevermore, she was in God's family, like me and you. That word that's used there, that she confessed, is the same word that's used in Romans 10, 9. It's the Greek word sozo. It means if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This wasn't just a healing encounter. This was a saving encounter. See, she came to Jesus full of sin and sickness, and he healed her completely. And so in conclusion, I want to ask you, where are you at in the crowd today? Are you, are you part of the mob that's rubbing shoulders and rubbing elbows with Jesus? Or are you reaching out in desperation to touch Jesus and receive his healing power in your life? Where are you at in the crowd? Examine your own heart. I'm of Scottish descent, and the people that in Scotland are known to be pretty frugal. It's just a knife word for cheap. And I read about a Scotsman who finally had his house wired for electricity. And after several months, the electric company sent out a, a fellow to investigate because the Scot was only using a tiny fraction of electricity every single month. And when he asked to explain, the Scotsman said, oh, I'll, I'd only turn the lights on long enough to light the candles. And then I turn them off. He had access to lots of power, but he chose not to use it. As a believer, you have access to lots of power. Are you going to choose to use it or not? 
I came across an interesting prayer that's based on this miracle, and we're going to make it our closing prayer. A man named Ken Guy wrote it. He said, God, I know that only those who suffer greatly reach out to grasp you. People who have nothing to offer but the faith that you can make them whole. I confess, O oh Lord, how often I have followed in the crowd pressed around you. Yet how few times have those brushes with you changed my life. I have touched you but only in the rush hour of religious activity. Sunday after Sunday, I take my part in the crowd as I sit through the service. I sing the hymns and I hear the sermon. I read my Bible, say my prayers, give my money. How could I be so close to your presence and yet so far from your power? Could it be that my arms are folded? Could it be that my hands are full? I pray that if my arms are complacent, you would unfold them and outstretch longing for you. And if my hands are full, I pray that you would empty them so that I might cling only to you. Our group's going to come up here and we're going to sing a closing song and then Britt's going to close us in prayer. But if you want to make a desperate touch of Jesus, the altar here is open for you to pray. You can come and pray at the altar or you can pray where you're sitting. But if you want your relationship to go from a, a gentle touch to a grasp to taste the power of Christ, you have that opportunity today. Every day is a new day. Every minute is a new minute to make that choice, to make that opportunity. Maybe you just, you've been suffering and you, you need to pray and say, God, help me.